And when I was on the ground in Congo, we saw it all the time. And it, Congo is such a vast country and the rainforests are so huge. But when you see it in, in real time and you recognize what's happening, that you're destroying a rainforest to produce more coffee, it, it's, a, it's a rational decision by the individuals that are doing it on the ground because they need capital. They need money to pay for food for their families. Right. You know, but the, the greater good is not served by destroying the rainforest. Welcome, Getting There fans. I'm your host, Alejandro Garcia Maya. Coffee is a $100 billion market and the second largest traded commodity in the world. How can we ensure that this industry is complying to sustainable and ethical standards? On today's show, we have Danielle Jones, CEO and founder of Bext360 a company tracking goods such as coffee, seafood, timber, minerals, cotton, and palm oil along their supply chain to help ensure ethical and sustainable business practices. In this episode, Daniel and I discuss blockchain technology's effect on the coffee industry. We cover many questions, including how is the production of coffee affecting forests? Who reaps all the rewards in the coffee world? How will blockchain affect how we will consume our coffee, and how farmers get paid, and much more. Join us in our conversation. Let's do this. What's your superpower? What trait do you believe has helped you get to where you are? I guess superpower, I would say, is not a fear of failure. That comes from my background. Being very lucky as a child growing up, I didn't have any chance of being without food, without water, without something, right? So I didn't get that gene in me to be afraid of taking risks. Before this, I started a merchant bank in Congo. A lot of people viewed it as a series of failures between before one in a thousand successes, <laughs> right? And I think we're dealing with the same thing now. What does success mean to you? When you can hear people that are kind of reaching out and just being told that you've changed the conversation about sustainability in coffee, or in cocoa or whatever we're working on. So it's success to me means changing the conversation and being part of uh, what's the underlying activist role that we like to play. Mm. It's hard mixing those with entrepreneurship. But to me, it's always enlightening when someone says, yeah, you really changed the way this group thought. Where did you grow up? I grew up in uh, Los Alamos, New Mexico. So oh. son of a physicist and a chemist. <laughs> uh, wait, wait. My brother's a physicist. Who's a physicist? What's yeah. that? You my said dad's a physicist. Oh, really? My mom's a chemist. My brother's a physicist. My sister's a physicist. So when I went to business school, my parents said, you're going to get your PhD in what? And I'm like, no, I'm going to get an MBA. Wow. frowned upon in the family. Growing up in that household, what do you believe you learned from your parents or siblings? I think it's a great question because my parents actually came up this weekend to see me here in Colorado. And I think I, it's easy to answer now. It's just constant skepticism, right? The scientific method, which to us just means, how did you get to that conclusion, right? And we always challenge companies on how they, how they get from point A to point B. And, mm -hmm. and sustainability, it's really hard, right? Because it's hard to even define what sustainability is. So, so before founding Bext360, you founded Ramika. And that's the first U.S.-owned company to export conflict-free minerals from Congo to the U.S. 
Can you tell me a little bit about that experience? And then, and I know that that experience led you to Bex 360. I just flew to Congo and started a merchant bank in 2008 with our own capital. That's what led to Remica, Refinery Mineral de Cleme, where we financed a number of deals. It was pure merchant banking, meaning that we would go look at assets and we would try to perfect them in the sense that we would kind of get them up to a standard where larger institutions could invest in them. Uh, Remica was the last major deal we did where we were exporting conflict-free from the mining level all the way and tracing and tracking it outside of Congo to meet you know, international standards for sustainable materials, really, or conflict-free materials. You put yourself quite a big uh, mission there when saying conflict-free, and how do you track it? So there were, there's existing systems that are out there to track, and there's a, a process set up. What we did was layered technology on top of that. So we layered robotics and IoT devices at the mining level. What's so miners, IoT? Uh, Internet of Things. What we found, and this is what led to BEX360, is we found that the, the producers of this grid, the artisanal miners, trusted a machine more than they trusted a person, which I guess in hindsight isn't that surprising. Like, why would I trust a person when they're always going to try to take advantage of you, mm. especially in Eastern Congo? So we built devices that would measure the mined material as the miners brought it to our buying station. So it's a place called a point of Shea, a buying center. So we put systems in where we could buy the goods using a machine and then pay them digitally, right? And this was the revelation that we'd go back to the villages in the middle of Congo, which I think is probably one of the most remote places in the world. Mm -hmm. People have 3G access making digital payments and people would be exchanging phone credit as currency, right? With Ramika, that's where you began to figure out ways so that you could trace and, and, and improve the transparency of conflict-free minerals. And it was in that process that you developed this idea for BEX 360. How did that transition take place? Four things that kind of came together, this perfect storm, and at least in, from my, like, what's next for what I wanted to build, was that there was this, this underlying infrastructure in these countries now in the developing world with 3G and digital payments and even edge technologies like IoT. All of a sudden, everyone had the ability to do it from wherever. And this has now been extended to the, the agricultural and mining producing regions of the world. And then the demand for these commodities, right? The demand for coffee, cocoa. I just started doing research on that and 30 million coffee drinkers today in China, 300 million in 10 years. Same story in India. So you have this huge demand for commodities and then consumers, which is the, the good saving grace of this whole thing. We have this rise of the millennials and the Gen Zs that are, are demanding sustainable practices in their food supply chains. And I just saw a huge gap between what companies can provide, how do they trace back to the farm level, and this journey back to the farm is what consumers want to see. And maybe they don't want to see it every time, but they want to know that it exists and that these companies actually have a measurable or at least a known origin for where they're making the claim that this is a living wage or sustainable or, or any of those type of things. So when I was on the ground in Congo, I thought that this was possible, right? And then you think of, as an entrepreneur in digital, you think, this is a huge market. Everything that coffee, cocoa, seafood in some senses, uh, minerals, timber, this is something that's going to be a huge opportunity for a tech company. And then the downside of this, and this is really what I'd like to stress to people, is that in the Congo, we see timber just coming down the Congo River. 
clearly with no documentation. These are logs that were clearly just being ripped out of the rainforest for commercial reasons, profiteering reasons. And then I started to realize that this whole digitization, the more we demand these commodities, the more of that's going to happen. So I got this pessimistic view of how companies are going to treat the developing world and the deforestation that's going to happen because of palm, because of coffee, because of cocoa, because of these major crops that individuals are demanding because we like them, right? Can you share with us what does that coffee process looks like right now? And then we can jump into what does Bex 360 do? So typically there'll be a, a co-op or a group of farmers, if you will, producers in, in Uganda or Rwanda or Kenya, Colombia, and mm. they'll produce coffee, right? They'll have their own small scale farmers that produce, and we'll stick to the small scale, obviously Brazil, there's a few places that are larger scale, but mm. in most of the world it's produced by small scale farmers and they'll own one or two hectares of land and they'll harvest coffee cherries and they'll bring it through either a, a natural process or a wet mill process, which is just two different types of processes to process coffee. So it'll go through a wet process, mm -hmm. it'll get dried, and it turns into something we call parchment, which is really the green coffee. And then typically the green coffee is then sold to what we see most often. We see it you know, being sold to the Starbucks of the world, to the countercultures of the world, to the McDonald's of the world. And then they either roast it themselves, in the case of Starbucks and these specialty roasters they'll roast it or in the case of like a mcdonald's they'll buy it roasted from a larger company that roasts their coffee for them. Mm -hmm. and in terms of parties it goes literally directly from the farmers to a starbucks no today so it goes from this is part of the challenge so typically the farmer gets paid maybe by an intermediary that just buys their coffee cherries for example mm. and that next intermediary will typically process it to a certain level which usually is like green coffee and then one of these intermediate these trading houses will buy the green coffee the farmer doesn't necessarily know what quality of product they have because it hasn't got scored yet. They call it cupping score in terms of the coffee. That first producer typically knows how much the trader is going to pay them. So what's happening is that the buying power of these organizations come in. And part of it has to do with the specialty coffee world because they only buy the very best parts, right? They don't come buy all of it. They just buy the top 5%. And then the farmers are left with a majority of their product to sell however they can, right? So a lot of times the farmers or the co-ops that are producing this really get in a panic situation, right? This is survival or not survival. So they're they're really in, not in negotiation position to sell their coffee. Mm. And they don't have any insight or capital, right? This is the, where I want to get to is that they don't have the capital to hold on to their goods either because the longer they hold on to it, the less money they have just to feed themselves and their families or it's costing them an extraordinarily high interest rate to hold on to their commodity before they sell it. What does Bex 360 do? We provide that first mile traceability so we can trace where coffee comes from. We also have a, a machine that can analyze coffee cherries and determine their quality. So at that very point of sale, at the very first step at the point of sale of the cherry, we can give the feedback to the farmer, the quality of, the, of your product is this good. And then we can make a payment too. We can give them a digital receipt or we can make a digital payment immediately to them. Or we at least would know who gave us what coffee, right? Which becomes important later in the steps. Using the blockchain, we're able to attach sustainability data. So if there is an audit of this area, if we did the surveys for child labor, uh, living wage, we, we can have all that data in one place and it actually travels with the product. So it can mm -hmm. go from 
the very beginning through all these stages that I described from the, the washing station to drying to mill to the consumer. And that product, if you scan that tag, now you can see the whole process, when it was processed, all the way back to the farm level. And we allow companies to share whatever data they want. Some companies want to share everything. Some companies just want to improve their processes, which we encourage. So it doesn't have to be public information necessarily. We obviously encourage that. But it can mm. just, how do I improve my, my sustainability? Right? Where are my weak points in my supply chains? And for the farmer, you mentioned that they come in and there's this machine. Can you give a description of what it actually looks like? Yeah, so the machine is like a Coinstar kiosk. It's about that shape and size. Mm -hmm. And it can take the coffee in and then it every single cherry comes through the, a system that takes pictures of it from both sides. So we get a complete picture of every cherry that comes through. And then we use artificial intelligence to correlate how good the quality of the coffee is going to be when it gets processed to the picture that we took at that instant. As the cherries are falling through the system, we can do an, an AI inference on every single cherry and then within seven milliseconds determine whether it's our machine separated in three different buckets. So, And that's all settable on our machine. So we can say this quality needs to go in bin A, bin B, and bin C. And then it, it will actually sort it about 20 milliseconds later into each of those bins. And so I'm the farmer. I just put the cherries in there. Mm -hmm. It separates it into different bins. And then... What happens next? It tells me what type of quality of goods I have and, yeah, so then, yeah. and then also what the cost right now in that market is. So that it tells you what percentage of your goods were high quality, medium quality, low quality. So you have an idea of when to harvest them better to get more money. And then it can either pay you right there and then for that, for the quality that you produced, or at least can track that that's how much quality product you put into the system because obviously these things get combined into batches as it goes forward mm. but often later in the process which is really hard for the farmers is that later in the process there's a thing called a cupping score which is kind of like the wine tasting if you will of the coffee world so they grade the coffee from a from a zero to a hundred but really from 75 to 92 mm. and so the specialty coffee that we drink is usually in the low 80s right it's, it's a good coffee mm. but the farmers don't get credit for that right the intermediaries get credit for that. Mm. And so if we know where the coffee comes from and we have a digital track back to each individual, let's say we just paid them a dollar a pound for their coffee, which is currently the C market price for coffee is less than a dollar, mm. which is causing a lot of the problems. If later on part of their, even if it's part of their coffee becomes specialty coffee, right? And gets sold at, at blue bottle or gets sold at counterculture or gets, you know, mm. has a higher value, then Instead of all the carbon copy and Excel spreadsheets that would happen to get the, each individual farmer paid, we can make a digital payment instantaneously based upon the value. Wow. Is that actual money going into that person's bank account or, or it's a cryptocurrency? It could be both. Our systems are set up to do whatever the consumer is capable of receiving. So in some places like in Kenya, there's a digital currency in PESA. We can actually pay them in PESA, which to them... To, in that culture, and at least in currently, there's no difference between that and fiat currency per se, right? Mm. The future is that a lot of these countries are going to have digital fiat currencies, meaning that their, their, their paper money currently, their fiat currency and their digital will be inter interchangeable at any kiosk. Anywhere you wanted to go, any bank, you'll be able to walk in. And Ecuador is a good example of this, is you can just click a button and exchange your phone digital currency for 
a hard currency, paper currency, or vice versa. We can make the payment to the farmer, and we also can track the value of those commodities as they go through the supply chain. Mm-hmm. So now we're working with a lot of the big banks that want to provide sustainable finance. So if you can picture a typical supply chain here in the U.S., you would, or in a place that has banking systems that are more developed, is that it, it will track the value of the commodity as it goes through your supply chain, as it becomes beneficiated, as it gets closer to market, mm-hmm. and the banks will lend you money as working capital. This is how most companies grow, is they have working capital, but in this world of commodities, it's trade finance, right? And a lot of trade finance in the, from the developing world really only starts when the container of coffee leaves Mombasa and heads to a roaster here in the U.S. So that's, mm-hmm. that part's financeable. What's really hard for the banks to finance, and it's not that they don't want to finance this, is what happens before that. It's hard for them to monitor the value and audit the value and to, to know who the, who the parties are. But this is where the blockchain can really change that. The producers of the coffee, they definitely have the land and the labor. Anyone who's been to these areas where they produce these commodities, these are the hardest working people in the world. Hmm. They have land. They're working hard to produce these goods. What they don't have is the capital. So back to what we talked about earlier is that if you could capture the value of their goods and provide them with capital, there's no reason why the producer in Kenya, the producer in Honduras can't sell their coffee directly to the farmer's brothers or McDonald's of the world or whoever's roasting it. There's no re- real reason for these intermediaries. Those are, those are intermediaries that are extracting all the cash out of the middle of the system so that the producers don't get as much as they deserve and the buyers have to pay more. So clearly, if you get rid of the intermediaries, there's a lot of profit left for the producers. And what the producers are missing is capital, right? They need to be able to hold on to their goods and, and, and even to the point where they could roast it themselves, right? We see a lot of companies that are starting to roast the coffee in the country of origin, which are obviously encouraged by the countries because they get more tax revenue if you're able to roast it there. You sell a higher value good when you export it. And so across all of these commodities, the more capital that can be placed in country the more jobs are going to be created in these countries, meaning the more tax revenue, which is a good thing for development. Mm. Um, it's also good for the, the producers because they'll, they'll have more control over their supply chains. And I just see that as the future of where these commodities are going to end up because there's no reason why we can't get capital down to that level anymore. There's no reason why we can't provide tracing and all the kind of tools that are in place for the developed world into the developing world. And that would be a game changer. That would be that type of capital finance would change the the economic conditions fairly quickly. And we're not talking overnight, but within decades. Can you go over the blockchain technology and tracing? How does that actually work? There's many ways of doing this, but the, the typical way that companies trace things in the same way we do is we take all the data, for example, what I just described at that machine. So if you were to put your goods in there, we would know a lot of information, right? We know the date, the time, the person. We know a lot about the quality of of the goods. So all that data gets gathered at that moment. And then we take all that information and we create a hash, a simple way of representing that data. So it runs through from a mathematical standpoint, it runs through a formula that turns all that information into a a, a 128-byte record of what it is. And the hash can be placed in the blockchain. And so what you can be sure of, and this is where the blockchain is is a game changer, is that none of that underlying data 
can never be changed. We can say this information was gathered in Nicaragua at this time from this individual. They are paid this much. And all that underlying data can never be changed. So we can be sure that the copy that you're buying at the other end has those attributes. And some of those attributes could be living wage, like you described. They could be audits for um, human rights or animal rights practices, or it could be the carbon footprint that you're producing. What, what actually is the carbon footprint of that product you're buying? And right now, all of that is possible. This is a couple of decade type of an initiative for sure. But all that information is now possible to gather and have the consumers be able to make better decisions about the environmental impact or the social impact or the economic impact of the, of the goods that we buy as consumers. So we've heard the benefits in terms of transparency and understanding where it comes from. Are there some negative consequences to this? I'm unfortunately of the mindset that big companies, and I don't think any of them are to blame, but the economics are going to drive them to become more verticalized, meaning they're going to try to source more and more of these commodities themselves from the developing world. And that the production of more and more of these commodities is going to mean worse labor practices, worse environmental conditions, more deforestation, just like we see in palm oil today, we're just going to see an exponential, unfortunately, growth potentially in the damage, the environmental damage that the sourcing of these commodities causes. And when I was on the ground in Congo, we saw it all the time. And Congo is such a vast country and the rainforests are so huge. But when you see it in, in real time and you recognize what's happening, that you're destroying a rainforest to produce more coffee, it, it's, a, it's a rational decision by the individuals that are doing it on the ground because they need capital. They need money to pay for food for their families. Right. You know, but the, the greater good is not served by destroying the rainforest. So there's, there's this, unfortunately, I, I guess I am a pessimist unless the consumer really steps up and says, no, we need to make sure these commodities, not only that we're paying people a fair price for their product, but that product is being actually produced in a sustainable way. Mm. And so this, without the consumers of the developed world, our desire for more clothes and more coffee and more, more cocoa and more palm oil and more of everything, if those supply chains that hit the developing world continue as they are, that's going to be, in my opinion, that's the, the most damage that's, that's going to happen in, in the global environmental crisis. And that just exponentially, that just, you know, feeds on itself for the global warming effects that we're seeing. Is coffee the only commodity that you're looking at? Or what are the others that work with your system? We do a lot in cotton. We've done a lot of really good things with Caring Group and with PVH and CNA and Zalando. In India right now, we're tracking cotton from organic cotton from farm to garment. Hmm. We can prove that it's organic cotton in that garment and that it's good for, again, it's good for the producers because they use less pesticides, which reduces the amount it costs to produce it. Therefore, they make more money. Hmm. Um, and we're working on a cocoa initiative to help with cocoa tracing and using our machine to track cocoa beans as well. And then actually just today, we started, we're on the ground in Liberia and Ghana, starting to track some of the palm oil um, that goes into some of the soaps. Are there are there any other technologies you've come across recently that you say, hmm, that's pretty interesting. Anything you've come across? I think the biggest one that we, we've done was just, this is what we're doing in India, is there's what we call marker companies. It's where you can apply a marker to a good. So 
you can market, let's say, with a fluorescent fiber, for example, in the cotton world. And then at the retail, you can tell that that same fluorescent fiber using very low cost validation at the other end is the same fiber. Wow. And so there's a number we partnered with, we, we think six in best in class marker companies to incorporate them into our software solution. That's so incredible. So based on the texture and color? So yeah, they intermix fluorescent fibers in with the organic cotton, for example. And so they put about 1% of this fiber in and then it survives all the way to the retail level. So we can prove that at least from the ginning level through the, the retail level, that it's the same fiber. But there's also companies that do microbiome analysis, which works in some industries. We've kind of worked with a couple of companies in the coffee space where you can actually just measure the natural occurring microbiomes that occur, let's say, in a coffee plantation. And even within the coffee plantation, you can track those microbiomes all the way through the, the roasted coffee and say this actually came from not only the varietal and the location where that coffee came from. That's incredible. Wow. Is there anything else you'd like to share that we didn't cover? Finance is a force of good, I think, in the world. Mm. If you can provide systems where the banks and the individuals can be assured that we're giving capital to the people that are doing good environmental things, that's the only scale that really makes a difference. We can all buy one or two small products that are good, but for the, the general population, the people that aren't as environmentally sensitive, really what it has to boil down to is the companies that are doing the right things need to get cheaper finance so that that sustainable finance becomes a driver of why companies need to do this. Because if there's no <laughs> return to the companies, there's no really capitalistic incentive to do these things, whether as a regulatory or from a banking side, things just aren't going to change. And I do really fear that these commodities are going to destroy places like the Congo because we see it all the time on the ground. And the more consumers can see that data and support those companies that have those practices, what we call conscious consumerism is, is, is the trends we're seeing, which are great. The numbers are great. People are willing to pay more. People are more concerned. People are reading labels more. So it, those are great trends that we've seen over the last three or four years, especially this year. Well, that's this week's episode of Getting There. Thank you all for listening to the Getting There podcast. Very much appreciated. Be sure to visit gettingtherepodcast.com to learn about more leaders solving the world's most pressing problems through our videos, games, blogs, and more. If you are or have a friend who's a social impact leader using scalable technology to find sustainable solutions for world-pressing problems, please reach out to my team and I at guest at gettingtherepodcast.com. That is guest at gettingtherepodcast.com. Catch a new episode every Tuesday. If you enjoyed the show and want to spread love back to my team and I, please make sure to subscribe and rate us. Have a wonderful day. And as my grandfather would say, adelante y arriba. <laughs>